So we're starting this Romans series now, part one. Romans is a big, long book, so we're going to trick you and make you feel like the series is not very long by calling this part one. So this is a short part one series in Romans through this semester uh, at school, right? Um, so we'll end part one around Chris, Christmas time, I think. What I want to do by introducing the book, though, is to look at Romans 12, and I'm calling it Starting Over. I'm calling it Starting Over because we are, in a sense, starting over. I, I want to call you to consider, like, is this what I want to be a part of? We're going to say this is what we're about at Grace Bible Church, and it's a good time for you to ask, hey, do, am I all in with this? Do I want to be a part of this? This is the same text that we looked at our first service 10 years ago. We looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2. And before we look at that text, again, it's uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's going to be on page 947 in the Black Bibles, if you want to follow along with us in those Black Bibles under the chairs. I want to go over some of the reasons that people believed Paul wrote the book of Romans, just to kind of give you a little background on the book. Um, The first reason that a lot of people think that Paul wrote the book of Romans was simply to clarify Paul's uh, doctrine, his teaching on justification by faith. Simply to clarify that. And I would say, yes, for sure, but there's more, right? So justification by faith is the central doctrine where we say we are made just or right, We're made okay in God's sight because of what Christ did for us, and we receive that by faith. That's justification by faith. And so Paul is going to spend a lot of chapters explaining how that works. And so, yes, the commentators are right. That is a reason, but it's not the whole reason. Another reason people say he wrote the book of Romans is basically to give a systematic theology. That one's a little more sketchy because typically a systematic theology covers all kinds of doctrines, And the book of Romans doesn't cover every doctrine that you could cover typically, right? There's a lot of other doctrines that Paul talks about in other books. And so we wouldn't say it's really a systematic theology, but he does speak and teach very systematically. And it is one of the richest and deepest books of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's the first letter of Paul that we have in the Bible. And most think that out of tradition, that's because it holds this like prime place. Like this is Paul's weightiest book. And so that's why it's seen as the first of Paul's letters. It wasn't the first one he wrote in order, in time, but it kind of is the heaviest. It's the weightiest, the most substantial. So get ready to do a lot of chewing. You know, bring your knife. We're going to do a lot of cutting of the steak as we're studying Romans. Another reason that people believe that Paul wrote the book of Romans is to raise funds for his mission to Spain. He's going to talk about that in the book, that he is planning on coming and meeting with the Romans refueling and then heading out to the far west, right? Like the outer frontier of the Roman Empire would have been Spain. And Paul talks about it explicitly in the book. And so under this theory, this is like the largest and meatiest missionary fundraising letter that's ever existed, right? And so again, I would say, well, yes, but there's more to it, right? So yes, that's totally true. That's what the letter's about. He'll talk about meeting with them, raising support, and going out to minister to others. And that's part of it, but it's not the whole story. And then the final theory, which I think is helpful for kind of pulling all the rest of the theories together, is that this is about teaching the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians how to get along. Because in history, this kind of quirky thing had happened. We are using the Colosseum as our artwork for the theory, uh, or for the series. And the Colosseum reminds us, or a lot of us, of Christians being killed for sport, Right? That hadn't quite started happening yet in time when this book was written. But what was happening 
was the Jews had all been kicked out of the city. So the Jews had all been kicked out of the city for rioting. A lot of historians think it was related to the Christians and the Jews not getting along as Christianity began taking a foothold in the Roman Empire. So Jews were kicked out. Probably doesn't mean every single Jewish person, but definitely the influential Jews were kicked out of the city. And so what does that do to the church in Rome, the biggest city in the empire, the most important city in the empire? The church begins developing in this non-Jewish vacuum, right? The Jews are all gone, or at least the influential Jewish leaders are all gone. And so the church in Rome, which is the most important city in the empire, begins to take on a peculiarly non-Jewish flavor. It's now kind of progressively the most un-Jewish church of all the Jewishes, or of all the churches out there, right? So it's the most maybe anti-Jewish or non-Jewish. Uh, it wasn't like they hated Jews, but they just kind of would kind of forget about them, right? And so then the Jews are allowed to come back in the city, and that's about the time that Paul is writing the letter. And so Paul talks a lot about how, how do the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, how are they going to get along? Is this gospel transformational enough to where people from different cultures can get along? And as I look out at your faces, I say, well, well, yeah, it's happening here. And it's continued to happen all over the world. And that's a part of what the letter is about as well. So it's doctrine. This doctrine is about fueling mission. And also that mission fuels us to love our neighbors right next to us and get along with people that are different than us as well. So let's read Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's very short, but it's very powerful. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's calling on us because of God's mercy to us to be transformed, to renew our minds, to live differently, to offer ourselves as, as living sacrifices. So today as we look at this, I just want you to be praying as we start over again as a church. It's like we're replanting this church. Ten years later, we're saying, all right, who's in? You want to do this with us? Do you want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Do you want to be a living sacrifice? Do you want to be changed by God's grace? I want to invite you to join us. Uh, let me pray for us that God's word would, would shape us today. God, we thank you for your word. And we receive it as a gift from you. And we pray that it would change us. We thank you for what you've done in our midst. You've continued to surprise us. Because you work graciously. You work kindly in spite of our sin and our weakness. And we pray that you would do that again right now, that your grace would shape us and mold us and transform us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look through the text, I'm going to kind of follow the outline that I followed 10 years ago. So I'm, I'm sorry for the three of you that were there 10 years ago. It might sound repetitive, you know, because I know you memorize all my sermons. Um, we're going to use different words. We're going to use different illustrations. Uh, but the same flow is going to be there. 10 years ago, I talked about Mercy, I talked about minds, and I talked about ministry. This is about mercy, minds, and ministry. Today, I want to talk about grace, Bible, and church. So God's mercy is his grace to us, and we believe God's grace changes everything. And we believe the way that God changes our minds is with his word. That's how our minds are renewed. So we're going to talk about the Bible. 
Are, are we submitted to the Bible? Are you listening to the Bible? Uh, obviously, you are to some degree right now, but in an ongoing way in your life. And then ministry. Are you engaged? Are you serving others? That's what ministry means. And so the way we like to talk about that is, are you being the church? You are God's plan for the world. We look out at the world and we're like, man, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Well, you're his solution. God has come to the world in Jesus, and he's using us to, to bring Jesus continually to the rest of the world. That's his plan. Are you going to be a part of it? So the first thing we want to look at is grace, his mercy to us. And we like to say that grace changes everything. This was on our website when we first started 10 years ago. I don't know if it says that anywhere now. I think it still says it somewhere on the website. But grace changes everything. There's this movement called the gospel-centered movement. So those of you that are Christian nerds that read blogs and stuff, you're aware of of this inside baseball, this thing called the gospel-centered movement. And what it means is that the gospel is not just the entrance into the Christian life, but it is the way we live every day. So grace is what saves us from our own sin. All of us need to come to a point of just trusting in Jesus for the first time to take away our sins and to give us his righteousness. It also, though, gets us out of bed every day. Grace is what transforms us. It's what makes us new. It's what helps us to live uh, in new ways. It's what gives us a reason to love others, forgive others, serve others. Uh, again, get out of bed every day. So grace, grace changes everything. It's not just the doorway into the Christian life. It's our ongoing fuel. God sustains us by his grace. And he says this by trying to motivate us uh, using the word mercies, which is really basically the same thing as grace, slight overlap of, of meaning there. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we looked at the sacrifice of Isaac last week in Abraham's life, and we talked about how Abraham had learned to trust God. Have you learned that you can trust God? And the way Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about it is that if you've come to the place of understanding that God is trustworthy, that you can trust his kindness to you in Jesus, that will begin to motivate you, appeal to you to live differently. A lot of, a lot of authors talk about it this way. You can either live as an orphan who believes that you're all on your own and you can't, can't count on anybody. I've lived a lot of my life that way. Or you can believe that you're cared for by God, that he's shown grace to you. That will transform the way that you live. That will melt your heart so that you want to love and serve other people. This grace changes everything. So he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. God's compassion to us. God's grace to us. God looks at us in pity and shows grace to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up, but he showed mercy. He showed grace. That's what Paul is saying here. And he's referring back to the first 11 chapters. So as we study Romans, we're going to be hammering this into our hearts. We're just going to be hammering again and again that God can be trusted, that God is gracious, that God loves you, and all these other motivations, all these other appeals in life that you can somehow save yourself or you can somehow educate yourself out of your problem or find the right relationship that'll fix it or get enough money or do whatever it is that you're pursuing. He's saying it's not enough. His grace is what should appeal to us, should motivate us. So this word appeal is, can also be translated like exhort, right? He's calling on us. He's cheerleading to us. He's motivating us. There's a lot of different ways you could say that, right? He's basically saying we're not motivated by having our arms twisted. We're motivated by the mercies of God. 
And that's always been a core value for us. It's always been something we believe here, that ultimately as we broadcast and publicize God's kindness to us in Jesus, that that is what's going to change you. That's what's going to motivate you. That's where our appeal comes from. And you will change the more you believe and cling to his grace for you. So he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He doesn't say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and then maybe God will love you. He says, God's shown mercy to you because of that, because of that, because of that. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. That's a completely different worldview. Every other religion in the world says, offer yourself as a sacrifice, and then maybe God will be pleased with you if you do it right. Christianity says says he's, he's pleased with you in Jesus. He's pleased with you. He delights in you. One of my favorite images is an image that comes out of Romans chapter 8. It's the image of the fatherhood of God. So we have here a dad snuggling his little boy. You can see the delight on his child's face. Um, The picture is that if you know Jesus, if you know that God has placed your sins on Jesus and that God has given you the righteousness of Jesus by faith as you trust him, then you also know that your heavenly father delights in you. And I know a lot of you struggle with that because maybe your earthly father didn't delight in you or wasn't there for you or you think you have to perform. And the story here is that the grace of God comes to us in Jesus and because of that, God delights in us. There's this big fancy word in uh, other parts of the New Testament, propitiation. And propitiation is not a word we use in our everyday life, but really if you, if you break the word down linguistically, what it means is that God has made himself happy with us. So maybe we should translate it like happy-ized or, you know, happy-fication or something. It's like God delights in you. He's pleased with you because of what Jesus has done. Not because of how impressive you are. Not because of how much you serve in our nursery. Although possibly he might be more pleased with you if you serve in the nursery. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. We'd love for you to serve in the nursery, motivated by the mercies of God. Not to impress him, right? Not to win his grace, but because of his grace. God's grace changes everything. It saves us. It gives us assurance that we're going to be with him in the future, that we're forgiven of our sins, but it also motivates us. It's the appeal by which Paul says, now go live your life for others. Go be a living sacrifice. Go give yourself up for others. So my first question is, do you have that vision in mind? Do you recognize God's delight? in you, that he loves you as you are because of Jesus, not because of what you're working so hard to accomplish. And then allowing that grace of what God's done for you in Jesus be what motivates you and fuels you and impresses you to work hard, to give yourself up. So am I saying we just sit back and, you know, let go and let God and we be passive? No. I'm saying we're motivated. We work hard. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I worked harder than everybody, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God at work within me. So work hard. I I want you to give of yourself and serve other people and sweat and struggle, but it's because of God's grace for you. That should always be what lights the fire in your heart. And that's where Paul makes his appeal. That's where he motivates us. The other thing I would say is not just that mind change in our heart, but then we would begin, because of that, praying. One of the prayers I've prayed over and over again is that we would be a people of prayer. So over the last 10 years, one of our elders has been meeting with me weekly. We've been praying together, and one of the prayers we pray a lot is that we would be a people who pray a lot. 
This last year's been a hard year in ministry for just a lot of random reasons. You know, a lot of little things that go wrong different years over the last 10 years seem to have all gone wrong this year, right? There's just a lot of different barriers and obstacles. And you know what that does when there's a lot of barriers and obstacles and things don't go the way you want? It kind of drives you back to go, okay, God, do you love me? Okay, yeah, you love me. What, what are you up to? And, and what are you doing? And can you help me? And, and it's pushed me back to pray. Now, when I've prayed that I'd be a person of prayer, I didn't really want God to answer it that way, right? I didn't want him to answer it with difficulty, but that's sometimes how it works. But it drives us back to answer, ask those questions, those first questions like, does God love me? Is he still with me? Is he still on my side? And you go on your knees and you're like, I know, I know you're on my side, so can, can you help me with these circumstances? Can you, can you show me how you're with me and show me what to do? And, and we begin to pray, we begin to talk to him. So are you a person of prayer? One of the concrete ways that you can get discipled and, and learn how to pray is our uh, monthly meeting. We have half day in prayer. Laura Shepherd leads that over here in the plaza across the parking lot. Uh, and then it kind of is a way to train you to, to begin spending alone time in prayer. And then the group gathers after they've spent alone time and talks about what they've uh, learned and how they've been encouraged through prayer. So that would be a great way to grow. And another thing you could do is begin learning more scripture because that's a way to fuel your prayers, you know? Because that's the language God speaks. So memorizing scriptures so you can talk to him with those scriptures. In the book, A Praying Life, it talks about making a little card for everyone in your circle of influence, your, your friends, your family. And on that card, just picking a scripture that you feel like God is calling you to pray for that person. It's a great way to kind of just grow in habits and practices of prayer. And of course, the things we always think about, you know, praying together as a family at mealtimes or praying at bedtime or praying when you get up. Just continuing to talk to him. Okay, God, I know that your grace changes everything, so help me to be motivated by that today. Help me to live that out today. Finally, I think one of the big ways we've lived this out over the years that I'm really proud of, that's really you, not me, but just things that God's done in your lives is we're a people that care about those that can't care for themselves. So believe, because we believe that God has shown grace to us when, when we couldn't earn our way into his uh, presence or please him on our own. We believe that God was pleased with us because what he did by his grace, we're going to relate to people that way, right? So that means you're not going to wait for people to be good enough to be worthy of your love, but you're going to love them because God loved you first. You're going to show grace to people the way that God showed grace to you. Um, This is loving people from all kinds of different backgrounds. One of the beautiful things about this church is we come from every tongue and tribe and nation and people, right? We're a diverse group, and that's because we don't base our relationship with God on what we look like or where we come from. We base our relationship with God based on his adoption of us. So that means we all come from different places because he loves us because of his love, not because of the tribe or the clique we belong to. So that's a beautiful way that's worked out in our midst. Also, people loving orphans and loving foster kids a lot of folks that are doing that, I'd encourage you to pray about ways that you could be a part of that as well. Uh, Loving those and adopting those uh, who are without love, who are on their own. Again, because God showed grace to us when we were on our own, we show grace to others. The next thing that I think uh, has always been a core value for us, and I want to challenge us to continue to grow in, is this phrase we used to use as a core value. It's the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. The Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. A simple kind of catchphrase for this is we believe in this doctrine called inerrancy, right? Uh, Inerrancy means that we believe that there's no error in the Bible, that it's true and it's reliable. 
And so we want to kind of gather ourselves, rally ourselves around the Scriptures and what it says. Like, what does this mean? That means it can stand up to our scrutiny and our study, and we can ask hard questions, and we can devote ourselves to learning it and memorizing it. Um, The way Paul talks about it in this section is he says we are to renew our minds, right? He says, don't be conformed, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So a lot of us are asking, like, what does God want of me? Well, well, we know. It's here. He's told us. So we need to attend to it. We need to pay attention and, and search out his word. And how does God want you to live? Well, he doesn't want you to just be shaped by a broken world, a world of pain and death and suffering, a world that's unjust, a world that doesn't really know love. He wants you to be shaped by his word. So are you being conformed to the world or are you being transformed? Are you renewing your mind? Are you having your mind changed by what God's word has to say? So one of the ways you can do this, of course, is just coming here. We gather to learn God's word together, right? But we also want to get you in relationship with other people. Do you have like a a battle buddy, which I don't think is politically correct anymore, but you, you have like a partner, right? You have like someone you can work side by side as I see people laughing. Sorry, I just heard that randomly. Random thoughts come through my head. Uh, you have, a, have an accountability partner, right, that you say, hey, will you, will you hold me accountable? I'm trying to conform myself not to the world but to the scriptures in this area. Will you help me live this out? Will you pray with me? Let's talk about the scripture together. Let's read it together. Uh, this can happen in a small group as well. We have small groups. We have Bible classes. I'd also encourage you to, to begin reading it for yourself. Um, what a lot of people do when they're new Christians is they say, I'm just going to read the whole Bible. And I, I'm trying to be careful about this. That's good to read the whole Bible, but I would just say be careful. There are easier parts of the Bible to understand, and there are harder parts of the Bible to understand. So if you've just got like an iron will, and you're going to gut your way through, great. Read the whole Bible. That's awesome. Um, but you might just want to start with like the Gospel of John. Or while we're studying Romans together, just be reading Romans. You might just start somewhere where, you, where you're getting it, where you're understanding it, and then kind of move on. Uh, there's this doctrine called perspicuity. And what perspicuity means is that the important stuff in Scripture is clear. That doesn't mean all parts of Scripture are as clear as all other parts of Scripture. But like the basics, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, God loves us in Jesus, he's gracious to us, he forgives us of our sin. Those basics are clear. We can find those. So kind of start with the clear stuff, grow there, learn it, memorize it, read it, and then, and then work your way out to the harder stuff. I have an illustration here as we think about being a place that listens to and submits ourselves to the authority and relevance of the Bible. Um, this is an ancient device, and I'm just curious if you would raise your hand as I show this picture. How many of you know what this is? So raise your hand if you know what this is. Okay, so like a third of you have seen one of these before. Okay, this is an ancient communication device we used in the 70s and the 80s. It's called a rotary telephone. And it had a wire that plugged into the wall. Then it had these little numbers. You'd stick your finger in and you'd rotate the numbers around based on the phone number, which you would generally have to memorize the phone number or find it in a book made of paper. And that's how you would communicate with people in the ancient world, or at least in the 70s and 80s. So we had these in our house. Now, a lot of you have never seen one before. You wouldn't have any idea how to use this, right? You'd just probably collapse in a puddle of tears if there was an emergency and you had to use 
one of these, right? And, and I use this as an example of sometimes the means of communication is different from the message of communication, right? It's like no matter what kind of phone you have, whether it's a cell phone, whether it's a telegraph, whether it's an ancient 70s phone, you can still call your grandma and say, Grandma, I love you. And that message can stay the same. But the phones vary wildly from decade to decade, right? Sometimes we don't even know how to use them. And as a church, as a people, we want to continue to be a people that can separate the message from the trappings around the message, So this is something missionaries always have to learn when they go to a different culture, right? They come into a different culture and they're like, well, we got to do it this way, don't we? Well, maybe not. I guess the Bible doesn't say that. That's just how we always did it back home. And you have to always be kind of filtering everything you understand about the faith through that grid. Does the Bible really say we have to do it this way? Is this really the message or is this the means we have of communicating the message? So another example I've liked to use in the past is uh, whenever we get rid of this pink carpet in this auditorium, we might have a major church split because some of you have begun to believe that pink carpet is the only way we can communicate the gospel to a hurting Colleen, right? I know some of you, it's like a core value. And I would say, no, it's really a secondary issue, right? That the faithfulness we have to the Bible is important as we communicate the message, but the color of the carpet doesn't really matter, right? That's a secondary thing. And so we always have to be learning that. And that's part of how we grow in understanding God's word is learning to separate uh, what the word itself says from how we say it, right? What language we speak it in. Another uh, illustration of this is a a lot of times you think because you speak the same basic language of someone is that you will always understand them, right? So how many of you are married? Any married people in the room? Is that true? No, yeah. I mean, some of you married people don't actually speak the same language, but even when you speak the same language, you just don't understand each other, right? Right? So there's this work of translation that we always want to be doing to get to what is the core of what the Scripture says. And that's how, that's how we want to live our life as God's people. What does the Bible actually say? What does it actually mean here? What's the main thing? What's the point? And we want to be pushing back to that and kind of trying to brush aside the secondary things that are confusing us or mixing us up. So are you reading the Bible yourself? Are you beginning to understand how it applies in your life? Are you learning to separate the message from the means that we might use to communicate the message. Uh, I hope you learn to do that because what that translates in, for those of you that God calls to move to another city, which is the majority in our church, when God calls you to move to another city, he's calling you to a church that's faithful to God's grace and faithful to the Bible and faithful to using God's church as the means to reach that city. And then everything else is kind of secondary. So you don't want to look for a cookie cutter that looks just like us. You want to look at something that it holds on to those essences, those biblical principles. Here's another ancient telephone. Some of you, how many of you ever used one of these? Okay, a few of you. Wow, that's awesome. Very cool. Apparently, a friend used to always try to get me to like hold on to a certain part of it so that he could crank it. Apparently, you can shock people with it too. Yeah, my electrician's laughing at that. Yeah. So you got to be careful with these ones. These are dangerous phones. So the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. When we look at the word, we're, we're hearing from Jesus. It's his word. So we want to treasure it. We want to learn from it. And so the next several months, we're going to be learning uh, from him, from what he says about the world and about us. The last thing is that the church should reveal God's love and justice in the world. Again, these are foundational core values we had when we first started as a church. 
we believe the church is actually God's plan for the world. Uh, so it's not some other you know, secret plan over here. It's not even the pastors of the church, right? Um, sometimes I mistakenly think that I'm God's plan for the world. And when that happens, we're all in trouble, right? It's the church. It's the people. It's not the building, right? Church doesn't mean building. And that doesn't mean it's a sin to call the building the church. That's like shorthand in our culture, right? You say, I'm going to the church. What you mean is, I'm going to the building in which the church meets. But you don't have to be all weird and say that every time, right? It's okay to call it the church, but just know, just know that it's you. Just know that you're the church. Those people that have been born again, that because of Jesus are adopted into the Father's love, those people are the church, the ones that have received God's love. So really the church it's, it's the people, and it's you, and that's God's plan for the world. One of the illustrations I want to use here is the uh, lighthouse. The lighthouse. I use this illustration because Jesus says this about God's people in Matthew 5, right? He says that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Don't hide your light, but let people see it. Lighthouses help ships to not break on the rocks in a storm. Help people to see where they're going. So you've got a lot of friends that are struggling, that are hurting. God says, you're light. You're there to help them out. You're salt. You help preserve and slow down the decay and the breakdown of the world and of your friends' lives. And you're there as light to protect and to guide them and to encourage them. That, that's your goal as God's people. He says it this way in Romans 12, 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we believe that everything we do in submission to God is worship, not just singing. Singing is a part of it. Singing is an encouragement in our worship life. But offering your life, serving others. The word ministry literally means service. And often you might think that ministry means those people that work for the church. And so there's a sense in which I am in ministry, right? Or am I, I'm a minister of the gospel. But the word is also used of every Christian. So there might be people like me that spend more time or a lot my time in different ways or work for the church, right? And that doesn't mean I'm not in ministry. I am in ministry, but you're in ministry too. You're in ministry. God is calling you to serve your neighbors. He's saying because of his grace in your life, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Give of yourself. Give of yourself. Serve others. The picture that Jesus gives in John chapter 13 is because he knew who he was and he knew the Father's love for him. He got on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. You should be an example of that in your life as well. So a lot of you are already doing this. And I want to say thank you. I praise God for you. Um, you're doing, a lot of you are doing what I, I sometimes call off-the-books ministry. And what I mean is it's not like official ministry that we've set up in a program at the church. And so I want to just honor that and say thank you. Thank you for ministering to your neighbors. Thank you for serving your families. Thank you for serving your coworkers. Thank you for serving the people around you. That is good. And keep doing that. Again, not to impress God, but fueled by the reality that God has shown grace to you. And I would say it would encourage us as leaders if you could share those stories with the pastors or the elders of the church. Say, hey, this is what God's using me to do. That helps us to know that his grace is having an impact in the city. It encourages us. That's a good and beautiful thing. I would also say 
we, we always need more people to help us with our, our on-the-books ministry, right? You know, like just the organized stuff we do. We need more people to be a living sacrifice and serve in the nursery or serve the kids in the elementary Sunday school class or work with the teens or help to start small groups where you're having people over to your house and you're leading them in a life of submitting to the Bible. If you're willing to do those things, pull out your bulletin and talk to the ministry contacts on the back. As we start a new year, we're always looking for new people to serve in these ministries, to give their lives as living sacrifices, to help other people to see Jesus and to see how good he is. We'd love to get more of you involved. You you are God's plan. You're God's plan to reveal his love in the world, reveal his justice in the community. You're you're it. As we close up, I want to look at this kind of parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 1.3. It's a parallel because it uses some of the same words that Paul's using here. So Paul uses um, the word, I appeal to you, and then he says, I appeal to you based on the mercies of God. And that word appeal, I said already, can translate as urge or even comfort, encourage. It's like he's comforting us, motivating us, and saying, you can do it because of God's grace to you. So that same word is translated and in, in, uh, used over in 2 Corinthians 1 as mercy is mercy, and comfort is the same word as a different form of the word appeal. And so he says this in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. So this Father, this Heavenly Father, he's the Father of mercies. He's the one that shows grace to us. And he's the God of all comfort. And in our passage, that would be the God of all appeal, the God of all motivation. The only way that you would be motivated, the only real way to appeal to you is through God's mercy. So he's the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, It's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we endure. To use the language from Romans, he's appealing to us. He's appealing to us because of God's grace. And when we suffer, it's an opportunity for this gracious father to once again appeal to us. And then he uses that as a way for us to appeal to others who are suffering and hurting. In the book of Romans, it talks about how suffering is a part of what God uses in our lives to help us to really cling to him by faith, to see him as our Abba Father, to see him as the one that loves us. And suffering is one of the things that actually marks us as God's children. As we share in Christ's suffering, we're living the same way that Jesus lived. So I want to appeal to you that God will show you grace in your suffering. It's a hard world we live in. But as you suffer and as you find hope in this God of grace, God will use that in your life to show grace to other people. Because we're all suffering. We're just just suffering in different ways, different times, different speeds, different intensities. But we're all united as a universal humanity. We suffer. And as we suffer, we lean into God's grace. And as we lean into God's grace, he allows us then to make that same appeal and that same comfort to others. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond and worship together. God, we thank you for the grace you've shown us in Jesus, and we thank you that you're transforming us, that you're making us new in Christ, and we pray that you would 
Help us to trust you. Help us to see you as gracious, as the loving Father that delights in us. As it says in Romans 8, that we would see you by your Spirit as our Abba Father, that we would cry out to you. That we would know that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that words cannot express, that even when we feel like we don't know what to say, that your Spirit prays for us because you delight in us so much. Help us as we study Romans now, Lord, to start over. Help us to start over in our lives. Help us to start over as a church that's transformed by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.